you. Thanks for tuning into the Waiting List podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Hey guys, it's my pleasure to welcome today's guest, Andrew Morgan. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hello, thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Thank you for asking. And I do want to say it's the first podcast uh, since uh, Jacqueline graduated. So I want to say congratulations to her on air as well. Big congrats. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right. You're, You're a big girl now. Yeah, it's been, <laughs> been a roller coaster. Right. Back to Andrew now. Um, it's likely that you haven't heard of his name before. And I say Andrew Morgan, you're like, well, who's he? But I'm 100% sure that everybody on this podcast has heard his voice because and he's the man. And seen his hands. Yeah, and seen his hands. Yeah, because he is the man. And you have nice hands, by the way, behind the Thank camera you. on the Watchfinder videos. So right off the bat, I've got a straight up question. We've been recording and releasing these podcasts for about three years now, and I still hate hearing my my voice back. How is it for you? Um, I think it's been so long and we've done 900 videos. It's insane. I will say as well that uh, Daniel can see my face and chose to say I had nice hands. So I'm going to take that personally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I've, I've kind of got used to it now, I think. I think with enough uh, practice and processing, it's okay. But funnily enough, if you go back to some of the earliest videos and and play one of those, um, maybe even stick in a little snippet, I sound completely different. I've gone through a lot of pain and effort to uh, overcome my disgust of my voice. Uh, and having not been able to achieve that, I just changed my voice instead. So I, I've gone through a lot of effort to try and retrain how I sound so it sounds better to me and now I think I've got to a place where I'm happy with it <laughs> well as, as a long time viewer listener of the Watchfinder videos it, it ranks up and Jack knows I'm not just making this up because you're actually on the show it's always one of my favorite videos to go to because I love how like the clarity of the video shooting um the information given and it's always generally about the right length you never feel like you're going on a bit oh thank you very much yeah there's a really there's a really perfect length and i'd like to say that it's down to a carefully calibrated uh, thought process and research into how long is too long how short is too short but if you go over eight minutes you you can turn mid-roll adverts on on a video so somewhere between eight to ten minutes is the sweet spot because you get to have the adverts on in the middle <laughs> right right uh Watchfinder videos have become a staple of the watch community, but I, I know because I did a bit of research on you, you didn't start off in watches. So how did you get into doing the Watchfinder videos? Well, it's sort of really uh, a little bit of luck, a little bit of belligerence, um, many things really. And, and thank you as well for your, your kind words about the channel. It's, it's been a fantastic journey over the last five or so years, six, seven, probably. Um, but I used to be a civil engineer, so I'm someone who likes to solve problems creatively. That, that's that's my passion. It doesn't, mean, doesn't really matter what it is, but if I can creatively solve problems, I enjoy doing it. And civil engineering was a great avenue for that. But it became too much about bureaucracy, less about 
figuring out the how to des- design a, a, a road network to meet all the requirements and, and be legal. And it became more about talking to local government and trying to persuade them to listen, which is really boring and frustrating. Um, but when I graduated, uh, I purchased a Rolex. So, uh, Jack, you can buy yourself a Rolex now. They're a little bit more expensive than they used to be, but congratulations, treat yourself. Um, so I bought myself a Rolex because that's what you did. And I started to get a little bit more into it. I uh, started taking pictures of it because I was interested in photography as well. And it was an interesting thing. It was a very challenging thing to photograph because it's you're shooting through glass. It's very reflective. It's um, very spherical if you include the bracelet. So it catches light from everywhere. And I also enjoyed writing as well, uh, writing stories, uh, novels. And I, I kind of wondered if I could combine all three of those together somehow. And I saw that Watchfinder was advertising for a copywriter to write descriptions for product. And it was a bit of a step down in salary compared to what I was earning as a civil engineer. So I, I pitched them a different job. I said, in the car community, you have all of these communities um, sorry, in the car industry, you have these communities of people, forums, meetups, events, videos. It's this whole great thing that watch industry just doesn't have. I think at the time there was TGV and there was Hadinki. And um, and I figured that we could do something bigger and broader and more inclusive than what Hadinki was doing. Hadinki is very much like you need to know the reference numbers. You need to know the various different kind of shades of color a dial has gone over the last 50 years. I wanted to bring it back and make it much more of a, an open uh, and, and communal type of um, type of hobby. So I pitched this to them and they, they, for some reason, they agreed. And from there, it was simply a case of going, oh, okay, now I need to figure out how to actually do it. And it was the, the turning point of digital photography and videography accessible with consumer products. And uh, and so we just slowly worked our way through learning how to do that, getting the equipment secondhand, bringing it in, setting up um, until we got to the point where we had we had blogs with articles and nice photography, started trialing video. And that's that's really where it came about. OK, well, I mean, I, I was just going to say, like, what kind of stage was Watch Finder at? When you first joined them and, and when you saw that ad what are we talking about a newspaper ad or like <laughs> you know those things that people used to read or you know what was it and what is your role now and what role did they give you so back then there were around 20 people in the business uh, and the advert was on indeed or monster jobs or one of those websites wow. something like that wow. so proper not not quite old school newspaper, but pretty old school when it comes to finding jobs. Um, my title then, I think, was just copywriter. Uh, today, I'm the content and community director. So my my job, or at least one of them, is to look after and nurture the growing community around the Watchfinder brand. And so my job is half creating cool content and events and all of those sorts of fun things that we all enjoy uh, consuming. That's half of it. And then the other half is saying to Watchfinder, no, 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 don't. don't make it too commercial. Don't push it too hard. Let's let's keep this thing organic. Let's keep this thing growing. Let's keep it enjoyable. And um, and to be fair to Watchfinder, they've been very, very generous in allowing me to roam free and do what I want with this thing. And I think that's 
really the the beauty in creating what it's become that it hasn't been uh it's, it's not a case of the golden goose getting cut up if you like so how many employees did watchfinder have when you first joined 20 yeah just just 20 so it was a very very small business the the four original founders um and then a handful of salespeople, someone in product photography uh, me and copywriting and, and then my boss at the time because yeah, i remember your videos your videos have been on youtube for for, for a, a while right and yeah it i remember thinking wow this is such high quality at such an early stage because it, there wasn't a lot of watch content uh, well i may be wrong but I, I don't believe there was a lot of watch content on youtube so to have that foresight to think youtube would be a platform where you could i mean well what it is today for a small company like that is it's still quite risky isn't it well it was it was very risk free because all of the equipment we already had because we were producing videos for watchfinder and then to upload stuff to youtube is completely free what would have been risky was to produce videos and pay to promote them but the reason we went down the youtube route is because it was a completely organic and free way to grow so our, our first successful video was a, a service center video. Uh, Watchfinder had just introduced its service center and we shot that process in action, a, a watch being deconstructed, uh, cleaned, repaired and rebuilt. And that video organically got over a million views. So it was very clear that you could produce these videos. And as long as they were efficient and the, the first Watchfinder YouTube channel videos that we produced in the kind of the talking hands format we we produced on lunch breaks they they don't take very long to make they're very very efficient to produce and the quality is really something that just comes off the back of trying to solve a problem because i think a lot of people think that our setup is very complicated and the videos take a long time to shoot but they really don't you can shoot all of the watch it's a two-point light setup um we have a black magic camera uh, it gives you really good dynamic range. But we were originally shooting on, on Canon DSLRs and um, a tabletop and a macro lens. Rotation shots, we just use a cheap video head that has a left and a right and up and a down. And it just turns, I think it was $100. That's it. Okay. So how, so you telling me you came up with that kind of format over a lunch break, over a Mars bar? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Because one, that's almost like a unique part of your channel, right? Because now if you look at a lot of YouTube channels, there is a kind of quote, watch celebrity on there. And it's almost like his no, or her. Almost like watch influencer, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Watch influencer. And it's almost like their opinion is a, um, above the watch. But the refreshing part of yours is um, a lot of it, the knowledge you share on it, actually, I don't think it's like opinion based. And when you do give an opinion, you, you give it in a way where you're open to suggestion from other community, which I really, really enjoy. The, the format is very much built around this idea that watches are incredibly subjective. And mm. so rather than uh, it's easy enough just to list specs. Everyone can list specs. It's especially easy enough just to throw wild opinions out there and say, I hate this, I love this. But to justify that is very, very difficult because they are so subjective. 
And so what, what we try to do with our videos is to tell the stories behind them, is to try and give context to different aspects of the watch to allow the viewer to make their own decision. Because if, if I said to you, the Tissot PRX is the best watch you could get for this price point, well, I need to justify that. And if I justify it, then I can probably just say, these are some of the reasons that you might purchase a Tissot PRX. You can decide whether those reasons are suitable for you. It's not mm. like I'm saying this car gets so many miles to the gallon and this one doesn't. If we wanted the best watch, we'd all go and buy an yeah. Apple watch. Yeah. I think that goes a lot down to your personality, just talking to you, because I think you're very considered in what how you speak. Even the, <laughs> the use of the English language in your videos is somewhat at a higher level than a lot of these influencer <laughs> channels, I have to say. I do very much enjoy using the language and uh, often for nefarious purposes, squeezing in a, a, a joke or something like that, just to see if people are paying yes. attention. Yes. Um, but it's great fun. It's, it's great fun to keep it lighthearted. It's great fun to uh, to say something that has people thinking a little bit and changes perceptions even. Um, and that's really where my heart is. It's it's that, that problem solving. How do you do a watch review when ultimately the only thing you can do with a watch is put it on? Maybe there are a couple of buttons to press. How do you make that a 10 minute video? Um, and for me, the answer is storytelling. The answer is to go on those little deviations and tangents that bring different threads together that ultimately and hopefully feel satisfying at the end uh, once all said and done. So it must be pretty difficult when you do the research, right? Because um, I've tried to do these videos and when you research some of these watches, there really is you, you, a lot sometimes when you go into the details of some of the history of this watch, where to pitch it at, you know, because there'll be people that are just coming in as an enthusiast, you know, somewhat interested not really sure about are they maybe buying their first watch and then you've got other people that are pretty more seasoned i'd say right mm -hmm. so how do you know like what level to pitch it at what information to include and then you know not include i think my general rule of thumb is if you were to say this to someone in the pub <laughs> would they still be sitting next to you by the time you finished because a fact is interesting only when you have the context for that fact. You could say the International Space Station travels incredibly fast. And you go like, yeah, it's in space. But if you said 17 and a half thousand miles per hour, you think, ah, oh, that relates to something in my life. I drive my car at 30 miles an hour. 17 and a half thousand miles per hour is insane. that's insanely fast. And it brings context. And I think that you can go to a pretty reasonable depth in the history and the technicality of watches so long as you provide context that makes it relatable. And for someone who's just getting into it, that context is very useful because it enables them to have context. It gives them a platform from where to start. But for people who know about watches a little bit better, that context can still be a satisfying way to understand something. It's a universal truth that storytelling is a great way to impart information. Religious texts are told as stories and not just a list of rules because we respond to it better. It's, it's the shared experiences of other people that mean you learn from them and then incorporate them into your own life. And just as a method of, well, we love movies, we love books, we love all sorts of things that are built around narrative. And that's ultimately where I derive the process for telling these, uh, telling these short stories.
<laughs> yeah, okay, Jack. Go on. I'm waiting for you to call on me. <laughs> All right, Jack, please come on. <clears throat> I have a question. Um, so what do you tell people what you do when you are sitting at a pub? I'm sure like the conversation does come up like, hey, it's nice to meet you. So what do you do? Like, how do you explain to them and verbalize your job to them? Do you just or do you just say I'm the content and community director of a company? So most of the time, I don't have time to go to the pub anyway. So <laughs> it's not really an issue that I have too much. Um, and the people who I'm generally friends with are people who have discovered me through the channel anyway. They usually have a, a similar mindset. And so uh, there, there's a, a common point of interest. And so we end up becoming friends that way. So I, I don't have to go through that. But on the odd occasion where someone does, I don't know, a relative that I haven't seen for a long time or some something like that, they say, what do you do? Oh, I just I work for a pre owned company. And then they're usually not interested enough to ask any further. So uh, that's the end of the conversation. Right. They usually want to talk about them. <laughs> right. I got the question, which is, I don't know how many videos you guys have released now, but 900. which 900, which watch did you enjoy shooting the most? Um, I think probably a standout moment for me is going from hearing about Grand Seiko on forums. Cause 2010, the snowflake leaked out into the rest of the world. It was a domestic brand, and this thing came out. And people were talking about it on forums. So I heard about it on TZ UK, which is uh, our UK-based watch forum. And people were saying, oh, this is really, really good. And it seemed like this really niche, nerdy brand. Obviously, it's got Seiko in the title. This is back before it was Grand Seiko at the top. It was Seiko at the top and Grand Seiko as a second line uh, on the lower half of the dial. And I thought, you know, Tosh and Piffle, this is this is somewhat something someone has found. You know, when you find a TV series that no one else has watched and all of a sudden you become an ambassador for this thing because you want everyone to know that you've discovered something that they haven't. Hipster. I thought it was a hipster brand. But when we actually got a snowflake and we pointed the macro lens at it and saw that the hands and the markers were basically perfect, not a blemish to be seen, that you could see the reflection of the underside of a hand on the other hand, that it was perfect. That the dial, the snowflake dial, when you zoomed in, had this essence of cold, desolate wasteland, that it really sucked you in. I thought, okay, no, it's actually better than I expected. And that was a real standout moment for me when I realized perhaps Swiss watchmaking wasn't the be all and end all. I think you've mentioned that in, in, in like, you've put that question out there in one of the videos i remember <laughs> because like, i'm yeah. a langer fan and uh i think you've shot a few langers in, in your day yeah yeah and yeah uh, that finishing is pretty good too it really you is shot, it really you is. shot the 1815 Paul murray tourbillon which uh i really enjoy watching <laughs> it's those watches we describe them as being like HD, although probably a more relevant terminology now is 8K. You zoom in and you zoom in and you zoom in and at different price points, different watches, there's a, a point at which you can no longer render any more detail. You get there and you, you start to think, okay, it's getting disappointing now. But with Alanga, you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and it just looks absolutely superb. And really to give, to give context to that, 
I have in the last year or so really started to discover more of the independence. Um, the Grubel Fallsies and the FP Jeans and those guys, the debutants who've been around for a while, but even more so some of the smaller guys, like this new Simon Brett watch that came out mm. um, a month or so ago. Stuff like this has really been uh, tickling my fancy. And Langer gives you so much of a taste of the effort and quality that goes into those pieces. But actually, and this seems crazy to say, at a much cheaper price point, they're not cheap, but you compare a Patek at that price point, at the sort of the $20,000 compared to a Langer, to me, different league. Andrew, your voice has been like mentioned as being ASMR for, for watches. And I'm just sitting here thinking, wow, this guy speaks so well. You know, I could just listen to you all day. <laughs> well, I've got to be able to get that from somewhere because my wife certainly doesn't like listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. My next question. We, we, what about a watch you haven't shot yet that you really, really want to shoot? Oh, I mean, that's just, if you consider how many watches there are in the universe and how many watches we've shot, there is still a big old yes. pile to go. A big, big old pile. I'm I'm very interested to get more hands on with a lot more of these independents. And this, this is happening, but the big problem that they have is that they're so sold out for so long. So we recently shot some watches um, uh, from Hodinki Berkus. Um, it's uh, a very small brand. The guy makes the watches himself, cases, everything. He's kind of uses wheels here and there from other movements, but he's slowly making them himself. And they have this very, very hand-wound, uh, sorry, very handmade feel to them where you think, wow, like this, this actually feels like it was made by hand. And that actually, as a slight tangent, as you know, I want to do, brings up this whole question of what does handmade really mean? This this guy takes pieces of blank metal and turns them into parts, whereas a lot of other brands, most of them will CNC the parts and will finish those CNC parts. And so I'm very keen to get my hands on more watches that are made by hand, that are not finished by hand, are made by hand, to really see some of those imperfections that being made by hand brings in. Um, and to start to bring more attention just to that that whole language overall. It's like Swiss made, isn't it? It means 60% made in Switzerland by value. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean made in Switzerland 100%. And handmade is like that, like in-house movement. What do these words really mean? Um, so that's my focus. Find watches that start to answer some of those questions. You're touching on some very controversial points within the watch industry because they're also Ooh. the greyest points, aren't they? I mean, in-house yeah. handmade. Oh, yeah. the scale. There is no definition of of that, right? Like there are currently brands you I won't say, but that use those terms. Um, I don't know how to say it. Like loosely or slightly loosely <laughs> bending the truth somewhat. Yeah, yeah. They really do. And a brand, again, to go back to uh, to Langer, they are very open about yes. the fact that they CNC their parts and then finish them and will show you the process of finishing that goes on quite openly. They're very open about um, outsourcing their cases and their hands and their dials. They, they have no problem in sharing that. The silly thing is this idea of in-house is a very recent one. You can mm. go back to the 50s and 60s and you're already there looking about brands who use different suppliers to make different things it makes perfect sense 
why would Volkswagen make its own wheels or its own seats? There are manufacturers who can do it far better, bring them together, provide the designs, collaboratively work on the best product. And to me, there's the handmade watch made by one guy, and there's what you get from that. But then there's also the collaborative process. To go back to that Simon Brett, mm. he he has he has pulled together 12 artisans who work for incredibly successful brands who in and of themselves aren't doing very well. And he's shone a light on them. Same with Max Busa, who uh, Simon used to work for. And I really, really think that actually, when you start to shine a light on all of the different artisans that work for different brands that come together to work on a, a really awesome product, it's better. It's not worse, it's better. And the idea of in-house actually starts to lose some of its value meaning I, I have to agree with you i think maybe we'll go to a point where um the folk i mean the whole point of in-house is that conception that you're getting a higher quality product and mm -hmm. i think if you are actually getting a higher quality product but through a collaborative process i think the market will accept that because the knowledge of especially when you play with independent brands generally is so high for the appreciation of their their product you the, the consumer is very wary and very knowledgeable on how to assess a quality watch like when we look at mm -hmm. angolage Cote de Genève, all those hand finishing uh hallmarks you see in a handmade watch they, their eye becomes very yeah sharp so i think over yeah. time maybe the market will accept that kind of thing what, what do you think jack you're, you're a collector of um a lot of independent brands um so i wanted to go back to Andrew's point first with Max and Booster and friends. Um, when I first visited their manufacturer and their um, one of the core team members uh, led me throughout the tour and we went to the Mad Gallery, sat down, had lunch, etc. And um, that was when, maybe just out of my own ignorance, I didn't know that they outsourced um, from all these different suppliers. I don't know why, but even then, which was last November, I thought, hmm, these independents should be mostly in-house. And when I said that, um, Thibault, like corrected me. He's like, no, 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 no. Please take a look at our website. Go through each model. And there's a specs list, like a press, press list. Um, and we state very clearly where the crystal comes from, where the sapphire rubies come from, where each and every component comes from. Uh, we are completely transparent and we have no, uh, there, we don't want to hide anything. And I did, and I was like, this is very fascinating. I'm, I don't know why I never knew about this. Um, they're like, yeah, well, some friends won't be telling you that they actually got their case from this supplier versus that. So I asked them about the pros and cons of this transparency. And they said, well, it's in our motto to stay transparent. But of course, you know, if it were to be more convenient and efficient, we would prefer to produce um, as much like in-house as possible but because of the brand's mission it's max booster and friends he's very collaborative and he brings people together while talking with other independent um brands 
uh, a problem that I have heard over and over again would be supplier issues. Like it really, when the supplier holds it down and it really hampers the production of the entire line, so to speak. And that's when these watchmakers really have no more control and they have to, oh yeah, supplier meeting, supplier meeting. You just hear them talking about, I have supplier meetings all the time. So it, it does make you, or it did make me think, um, like, how do you weigh the pros and cons? Of course, it might be more convenient and collaborative when you outsource with different companies. But when these suppliers get so overwhelmed with demand and orders and they have to kind of hold off the entire production, then how do you deal with that? So that's something that I, you know, I always ask whenever I'm in uh, Switzerland and visiting independents. Um, but going going back to Dan's question, um, I've been slowly trying to learn more and more about these smaller brands, these really artisanal watchmaking, uh, the craft of it. And I agree with what Andrew said. I don't see any problem with brands outsourcing and collaborating with other suppliers. I think do whatever makes sense for you, but that th that's just me. I can also understand why, you know, when you're paying that much money for a vision of the watchmaker or the founder of a brand, maybe it is, you know, it's fair to be a little bit nitpicky and say, but I'm paying it for your name. Shouldn't most of your components, if possible, come from within the house? Um, but I personally don't mind it. Yeah. I think as well on, on that front, you have an expectation of the wizened old watchmaker hunched over a piece of metal that is slowly crafted into a watch. Uh, I think a lot of those people would be fundamentally disappointed to see that the thing crouching over the piece of metal is a machine. <laughs> another thing, another the thing is, yeah, um, when I, and I haven't, you know, I've had the, uh, luck and, and pleasure of visiting some manufacturers since last year, you know, after kind of lockdown got lifted. And uh, I have to say, you know, because of the, the merit of the podcast and meeting these, you know, people through, through Instagram and online, um, I have heard once and one over and again, that it's not an old man hunched over a desk, polishing uh, a bridge. You hear that and you're like, yeah, I, I know it's the 21st century. It's probably not like that anymore. But that image still is in your head when you're visiting these manufacturers, right? You you you, there, yeah. you can't really get it out. And then when I did visit manufacturers, with some independent manufacturers, oh man, like the first time I visited, I was like, this is so interesting. It's all young people with AirPods in their ears they have like <laughs> leftover food on one side of their bench and then it's not at all very organized you know and then you, it does make you think hmm i mean it's interesting i, I love how uh the watchmakers that i saw were, were all young you know it's it's very um unlike what the traditional swiss industry like imagery that that the industry kind of sends out um yeah 
it's one of the yeah. only industries that I can really think of that the reality is incredibly different from the marketing. And I, I don't know why they persist with it, but they don't need to. They don't need to. The, the product speaks for itself and the process of getting there. How far can you get away with fluffing up the truth before people start to think, do you know what? I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to buy because something. Because it's, it's not romantic. It's not romantic when you think that, oh, your watch was built by 20-year-olds with one AirPod missing in their ear and leftover food. It's not, <laughs> it doesn't sell well. It, it sells better when it's an old man, you know, white beard, like Philippe Dufour, you know, with a pipe and uh, in a remote uh, cottage in the Swiss Alps or whatever. You know, that's that's what people want to buy. And I completely agree with you. Um, so maybe it's up to us to to tell more, you know, shine more of a light onto this imagery. I think it goes back to what Andrew was saying about storytelling. It's that like uh, that image of uh, basically Philip Dufour over a bench hunched over using, you know, wood to polish the bridge. That That is a far more um, engaging story than one that they can come up now for the modern modern way it's done. Right. Would you agree with that, Andrew? Well, I, I have found that I've told the story of the old man leaning over the bench with a piece of wood so many times that when you start to meet some of these younger guys and their motivation, their stories, their, their drive becomes so fresh and interesting. So recently we featured a watch uh, by a guy called German Pelosin. He got in his head that he wanted to make a fun robot watch, just a cheap little quartz thing, just to scratch an itch. And before he knew it, because he similar mentality to me, a problem solver, gets way too invested in the detail, had created a multi-layered CNC machined robot case made out of something like eight different parts, some of the, the most precise and impressive CNC machining and finishing that you can imagine, which is a, a skill set all in of itself. And telling that story was more interesting to me than saying, oh, deep in the Swiss mountains, there's a man with a long beard and He's very, very antisocial and he's filing pieces of metal because it's just, it's, it's old, it's done. Mm. Um, and the stories of these younger guys. So uh, I wouldn't say that they're the youngest, but they're a fairly young couple, uh, Stefan and Ev Kudoke in, in Germany. What they're doing, working with Habring and other suppliers to create movements that are affordable but also high quality keeping hand skeletonization and engraving alive as well but still trying to make it work in their house um and hearing their story of well we've, we've got lots of orders but we need to fulfill those orders to bring the revenue in to actually move workshop from the living mm -hmm. room to a separate building those stories the stories that are always the best and this is true now as it is thousands of years ago are stories about people and i think these brands can get so obsessed with the uh the product that they forget that the reason we buy them is because they're made by people a great example of this is the rise and rise of francois Pourjourn. for so long people had been collecting vintage rolex vintage Batek all tied to a brand that in its heyday was doing crazy things in the industry. So a, a 50s Rolex that was doing stuff different, a Submariner was still when Wilsdorf was alive. 
I think. I'm pretty certain. <laughs> I think he died in the 60s or maybe 70s, can't remember. But it was still attached to the brand that was still trying to break into an industry, competing with Omega that was hundreds of years older. Rolex isn't like that anymore. Rolex is a business built around a legacy. For tech, same thing. They have their advanced research programs now, but it's kind of, it's noodling, isn't it? It's noodling on something that isn't really needed. But then when you get Francois Bourgeon, all of a sudden it's connected to a real human being who's alive today. He's a grumpy old man and he picks and chooses who he wants to buy his watches. You hear these wild stories of what he gets up to. And you think, I'm attached to that because I can connect with the mind of another human being. And that's why I think this fascination with independence has really boomed because collectors aren't just going, oh, I'm buying from a brand that once upon a time was connected to a human being, but it's now a corporation. I can get onto Instagram and I can send a message to the man who is making my watch right now. And I think it just carries so much more intrigue and weight, especially from a storytelling perspective. I think a lot of the interest in independence as well is that the lack of availability of getting stuff at retail from you know, Rolex, Patek, AP, FB Jean, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. you can get them a watch finder. There's a plug. There's, there's the plug for you. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, you, you look at the stuff that's offered in Basel and it's like, it, we can't get it anyway, you know, unless you're spending a lot. Right. And so yeah. then that forces you to look at independent brands. I feel, you know, that, yeah. that, that well, even with independent there. brands, you can't get yeah now stuff at without waiting or at all so where do people go people i think people feel happier to wait for an independent knowing that the production is limited by the work of a few people in a room but i'm having said that i think rolex is genuinely limited by production i think the demand is so great that they they literally can't keep up with supply and of course, the, the retailers of those products are going to save the best ones for their best customers because it's a, a more effective long-term game for them. But you're right. Where where do people go next? Um, yeah. Even when you have to wait on a queue for a studio underdog, <laughs> it's crazy times. I was going to ask, you know, you do a lot of research um, for these watches. I think you write the script before you start shooting, right? Um, and you've been doing this for a while now, 900 videos in. Do you still get the same excite excitement? You know, it must be it must be becoming harder and harder to find those little nuggets of information that like uh, excite you. Well, I can let you into a, a hot secret. We shoot the watches before we write the scripts, and the mm -hmm. hand waving is fake. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. There's a little hot little tidbit for you. Um, I suppose because I'm. Uh, familiar enough with the industry actually no i'm going to go back on that i thought i was familiar with the industry but i'm always discovering new layers new facets new gossip new people new approaches that it never gets old uh it's, it's evolving so quickly which see, sounds like a complete oxymoron because this is an industry that's still hanging on to the idea of a salmon dial being exotic but actually the people and the businesses are changing very rapidly Collectors' tastes are changing very rapidly. You see this across the world. Um, uh, I, I remember only five or so years ago when it seemed to be the mantra of 
most Swiss brands or many Swiss brands was make it big, make it crazy, and the Far East will buy it. That has completely changed. The tastes have changed so rapidly and you're seeing so much more of a discerning approach to collecting um, in that part of the world that these brands can't just dine out on just one idea and keeping it going. Mm. Um, And so for me, following those trends, following these people, so many more independents popping up, so much more competition, seeing Omega sneaking its prices up, seeing Tudor trialing different things that end up in the Rolex catalogue, seeing which parts of the world like what and where, finding out that India is absolutely in love with Rado and thinking, what? (laughs) Why? (laughs) That Japan has an obsession with Omega. What? I still haven't got to the bottom of why with Rado yet. That's uh, that's on the to-do list. But there is a list of things that I want to discover. I want to explore more. Um, and it just never stops. There are there are more watches, more people, and more brands that I can possibly keep up with. And really, the limiting factor is the audience. What does the audience want to hear about? And how have you found that change over the years? What has the audience wanted to hear about from when you first started making these videos? The there is much more interest. Well, I think actually. It's when we started, as you mentioned, it was a very blue ocean. There weren't huge amounts of people making videos about watches. And so if we made a video about a watch, it was a the only place to go. But now there are so many great creators out there. Um, we were talking before about uh, about Nico Leonard, Teddy Baldassar, uh, some of the smaller guys as well, like Just One More Watch and Ben's Watch Club and um, Russell over at the Mad Watch Collector, Jenny L., um uh adrian pierce adrian oh God, he's gonna not like that but i forgot adrian <laughs> Adrian, oh, there's so many so many different people coming at it with different perspectives different points of view um that it's much harder to be heard amongst all of that right so really for us value is very very important there are obviously a lot more people in the world with less money than there are more so value touches a, a bigger audience but finding those stories and those watches that grab you from a view, from a single thumb, that have something like a, a moment about them that is fascinating, like that robot watch, an £8,000 robot watch. Or, um, well, I would I would have said that Jacob & Co. watches would have been really fascinating for people. They're incredible pieces of uh, mechanical artistry, but those haven't been as popular for us. And it's really a case of trial and error at the moment it's become harder and harder to, to understand what it is that people want to see rolex right. they want to see rolex <laughs> <laughs> right um well that just sped by i swear you know we could just go, keep going on for another hour so i'm going to finish off with this question which is along your journey with watchfinder what has personally been the biggest highlight for you oh I think very recently, because it goes from highlight to highlight, and each one just eclipses the last. It's been such a fantastic thing. Um, and this has only really been possible because of people like you guys watching the videos, uh, commenting, engaging, encouraging us to keep on producing, allowing us to test new things, allowing us to trial and maybe make some mistakes here and there, but just ultimately try and produce better stuff. Recently, in the last year, we've started doing uh, in-person events, which has allowed 
me to actually start meeting people like you guys in person and to hear the stories that people have to share about how they've enjoyed the channel but even how the channel has uh has has impacted their lives in some way some people have uh, have been able to get through lockdown because they've got a channel that they can go back to that they can enjoy has been unbelievable it's been genuinely soul touching to, to hear these stories and to meet people and to go from making watches uh, sorry to go from making videos at watchfinder just focusing on the next video the next video the next video to actually meeting people and realizing the impact it's had is unbelievably special uh, i'm so grateful for it and i i still can't quite believe it to this day yeah i just i just listening to what you were saying yeah you're right you've been making these videos in a room or an office <laughs> not really in, like engaging these people via commentary on the comments maybe and, and reading them and having a little chuckle to yourself and never met these people in real life and and i guess when you do it you go back to that thing you just said it's all about the people right exactly it's all about the people it's all about the community um, and i guess that's why i've been put in charge of it for watchfinder <laughs> well i think it comes across apparent so apparent that how passionate you are about what you do and to have done it for so long and still retain that passion and look to you know go to new frontiers with the content that watchfinder it, you know it's, it's so good to hear because i'm so passionate about what i think you know jacqueline is as well you know about this this crazy hobby we have so it, it's fantastic to hear and i, I really hope you know i i love the content i really do <laughs> yeah it's like my go-to <laughs> when i'm searching for a watch yeah i'm looking to see if you guys have shot the video for it because i, I yep. really it's really key that i see that watch because a lot of, for a lot of people they're not going to see the watch in the metal i'm a bit lucky mm -hmm. you know because i i work for an auction house but for most people the only the first time they see it is when they buy it maybe yeah or they're thinking about <laughs> buying it um, yeah so i think it's an invaluable resource to have so really thank you for so so much for you know putting your passion into work and from, from at least from me i'm so grateful to 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 watch those videos well thank you so much for watching them um they wouldn't exist if you didn't um and it means i get to meet people like you which is fantastic and join you on this wonderful show so thank you very much right we now go on to the next round which is the reverso round so now it's your turn to ask us a question each andrew what would you like to ask all right I'm going to start with Jack first because you've been chatting way too much then. Uh, Jack, what's the watch that you are ashamed to admit that you like? Oh, damn. Oh, man. <clears throat> I'm ashamed. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like I've answered this question Uh in my DMs, because every time I post the Richard Mill, I get ah. a bunch of messages <laughs> like, why, why, <laughs> why do you, do you like this brand or et cetera? Um, but I just like how it makes me feel when I, when I wear it and it, it makes me feel young and, and like full of energy and, and vibrant um, I just think, you know, we're talking a lot about marketing and, and, you know, a brand could have great marketing, but 
once you are kind of affiliated with the the rappers uh in the in this uh, in the music industry or the hip hop or kind of the bedazzled diamonds and gem sets like Jacob and Co I guess um people start thinking if you've actually had a, have a brain for for buying what you like um so i wouldn't say i'm ashamed but i do get shamed uh when whenever i i i post I post a story or um, a photo of of my RM, um, but I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So you should. It's very bizarre that anyone can tell someone else what not to like when it is entirely subjective. I think it's fair to say that there are better value for money watches, but that's not the point. You're not buying it because you want great value from it. You're buying it because you like it. And I think for a lot of these people, I think there's an experience that they're lacking. Because when you try a reshop move on, it does make you feel good. It, it really does. does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. Right. Dan, are you ready? Yeah. What watch do you think should die? Gone. Erased. Pessimistic. The face of the yeah. earth. <laughs> <laughs> which watch? Yeah, watch, which right? watch? Oh, One this is watch easy. Model. All right, okay. Because there oh, was this I'm watch. being pessimistic. This is easy. <laughs> <laughs> there was this watch that was released by Tag Heuer at, Bar- at Watches and Wonders this year, right? Mm-hmm. And it had these uh, organically grown diamonds on it, right? Yep, I know the one. Yep, you know the one. It was called like uh, something avant garde. <laughs> even had avant garde or something in the name. Um, it's it had the, the diamond crown as well and then they had because they released it a, a, two years ago within the just in the case and then they put more diamonds into the bracelet as well if I yes recall. that's correct and i think that was a really really bad move because that watch now is really uncomfortable to look at like you know i don't know there's a specific kind of condition that hypophobia there you go Right, that one. Oh, oh, I see. When you say difficult to look at, you don't mean oh, it's disgusting. You mean as in it's got those that weird hole yeah. thing going on. Yeah. Uh, the plasma d'avant garde. Yeah, there the you name. go. That one, and I, I think even without the diamonds, it's really not that nice. And then with the diamonds, it just takes it to another level. And I, I can't look at that watch. And I, and we we actually had that watch <laughs> in our group little group chat here, and we had to delete it off the chat. Because we just couldn't look at it. <laughs> so it, that that would, you know, I've just said it, haven't I? We had to delete it. So that was the answer to that. That was that's why I came up with that. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. That's a weird one, isn't it? You see those pictures of people who have pressed a bag of frozen peas into their knee on social media all the time, and it has all those little dimples. So you're saying it's the watch version of of that? Yeah, it's kind of like I think people could get hives from that, you know, by looking at that watch. <laughs> i'm never going to look at it in the same way ever again i mean granted i haven't looked at it that much anyway so yeah, but also, i think but... it's pretty expensive for, like it's probably really expensive as well right which probably doesn't help its case yep uh, i love that little pun of mine case. didn't help its All case holes <laughs> in it yep um I'm surprised, actually, that Richard Mill hasn't created a watch entirely made out of lab-grown diamond yet. They've done it with sapphire, but not diamond. It's coming, isn't it? It's got to be. 
Well, they've got to find the buyer first, probably. They'll find the buyer and then they know they can definitely sell it, probably. And then they'll go and make it. And they say, oh, we made it now. Do you want to buy it? <laughs> I'm not surprised. I, I feel like they have so many things under their own belt. Um, like the new uh, ladies collection, the 0702, um, uh, that they released like popsicle colors. Um, I heard like that's been under development for like more than four years, something like that. Um, and they have so many like unreleased uh, models that people actually own. They just never really published it online. You know, like there are uh, variations of the 67 or other models that you could really buy made of different materials but they just never even put it out in their own catalog it's it's wild uh what what they're doing so yeah i don't know why they get so much hate i really feel like every time i get a dm i'm like no you should you should look at what they're doing you know technologically it's actually very impressive but people just get caught up on the um the branding i guess I personally think that in 20 years' time, people will look back at Richard Mille in the same way that we now look back at the Royal Oak as being this pivotal moment that changed the industry. Because the Royal Oak was this idea of turning a mechanical watch into a luxury item when mechanical watches were no longer needed. And at the time, it was hideously expensive, more expensive than their gold complications from AP. And it took a while for it to catch on. But when it did, when people realized this is a new way to think about luxury watches, it became incredibly popular. And when you think about when the first RM came out in the late 90s, I think it came out before the offshore, for example. I think it came out in a period when even having a tourbillon at the front of your watch was a big no-no. But Tech Philippe would put their tourbillon in the back. And it absolutely changed how people would make watches. From there on, you had... Um, I'm going to check the, I'm just going to check myself, my fact checking. Maybe the offshore came out before. The offshore might be 1993, actually. I, I wish I could help you there. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, Richard Mill. Okay, 2001. Yeah, so sorry, I will I will correct myself slightly there. The most outrageous thing that you had before Richard Mille was like a Royal Oak offshore. The 90s was a very, very reserved period. And Richard Mille went, no, let's have this crazy three-dimensional architecture. Let's produce something that's designed for sports professionals who have plenty of money to buy and enjoy a luxury watch. It's not a sporting watch. It's a luxury watch for sports people to wear. I think people are going to look back at that, the difference before and after Richard Mille and think, yeah, that was game changing. That really was game changing. Look at the emoji, the, the watch with a smiley face. I don't know the reference that came out uh, yeah. last year. Recently, um, yeah. And I'm sure it's no coincidence that Rolex are now going, uh, oh, we should have a bit more fun too. Yeah. It's, there's, it's, a, it's a watershed moment, isn't it, where watches yeah. have gone, now, we're going to be really overtly fun and in your face. People aren't going to like it at first, but it's going to catch on and it's not going to go back again. 
Why do you think why do you think that is? Why do you think people like having emojis and and smiley faces on their wrists? Or extremely colorful. I think yeah. I think there are two factors to it. The first is the reason why the Royal Oak was so successful. It's a very very good way of broadcasting what you have. You can tell that a Royal Oak is a Royal Oak from the other side of the street. And so back when the Royal Oak was first released as a steel watch that was much more expensive, you could wear it and people could know that you could afford such a thing. That's one aspect of it. Um, and I think as well, people might paint a bad light on that perspective, but it's nice to know that you've been successful. It's nice for other people to see that you've been successful. There's nothing wrong with that. The other aspect is it's fun. Yes, it's expensive, but expensive doesn't have to mean formal and boring. Expensive clothes doesn't have to mean uh, black tie. It, it doesn't have to be so boring and plain. Why can't things that are expensive be fun? Lamborghini get away with it. So why can't watch manufacturers? Yeah. Right. Um, actually, on the same kind of notion, when you were talking about fun, you know, even like, let's say, Moser. You know, they were doing like little erasers on their little thing and, you know, making fun of the uh, um, Apple Watch and, and things like that. Yeah. But, so there are brands that are pioneering that way of really, really embracing, you know, what we come to understand is lifestyle. What is our mm -hmm. what is what are what are the consumers lifestyle now in the way of how do they want to express themselves? And it is going more towards like watch as an expression of yourself rather than a time-telling device you know as evidently shown by a lot of Moser creations you know yeah 100 percent. and there's just more and more opportunity to express yourself in different ways do you remember when watches either came in black dial or white dial <laughs> how boring was that <laughs> i want to be able to look at my watch and like i, I don't know if you've seen the the Moser talking of Moser, the smoked salmon this bronze dial that plays with the light like it's the eye of Sauron glaring out at you <laughs> from the watch. It's fantastic. But like that, for me, is injecting some real fun and energy to it. For me, emojis might be too far for me, but I can understand why other people, it's a part of who they are, especially if you like to accessorize and you like wearing mm. lots of different colors and you really like mm. to change up um, how you appear day to day. It's the perfect thing to chuck on and start mm. a conversation with. Right. We're going to go to the pump push around, which is the last round, but I, I'm actually like going to sneak in a little question here because it just dawned on me. I haven't actually asked what watches do you like? <laughs> I like lots and lots and lots of watches. Most of them I can't afford, which is a <laughs> shame. Um, but today, I mean, I can start with what I'm wearing, which is my Grand Seiko Omi Watari, uh, which to me embodies many, many things that I enjoy about watches. It's not normal for a start it's made in japan it's got a quartz and mechanical movement in it the spring drive those two things are already great pub chat for me because so i can say oh yeah you think your rolex is great well look what this does um it has artistry in it with a dial that's inspired by the the, the frozen lake and the shifts of the, of the of the ice um and then the quality of the manufacturing is incredibly high too and it comes at a price point that's not that's not too desperate for someone like me. But I, I really, I, my favorite watch changes every day. There is so much out there that I love, whether it's crazy down the Richard Mille, MBNF route, 
or whether it really comes back down to earth, very plain and simple, like a, a Saxonia thin and everything in between. If I had the means to, my watch collection would be thousands and thousands of watches. And then I just feel bad because I can't wear them. Right. Good answer. <laughs> so we're going to go into the final round now. It's just a pump push around. Some quick ones. Number one, what is the most unusual or funny or strange comment you last read on one of the videos? Oh, um, one that sticks with me. It probably wasn't the mo one of the most recent, but with my own personal channel, I've recently revealed my face um, just to see what people thought of it. Seems to be working well. We're going to start to have more of that on the Watchfinder channel too. But one of the comments, because people in the comments really don't hold back, they said, <laughs> and there, there are people who have said face of radio and all the really obvious things. But this one that stuck with me, um, he's almost handsome. What does that mean? What does that even mean? That has stuck with me ever since. Is that a compliment? Is it a criticism? I don't know. You're <laughs> it's right. It's so layered. It's so layered. It's so so like a backhanded compliment. He's almost handsome. Yeah, you're right. I, I wasn't the first thing I thought of, but now I've given a bit of thought. You really don't know, do you? I, I really don't know. And it sticks with me. I think about that comment at least once every other day. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, YouTube comments are just comedy. You know, you go to the top com top comment, they're usually <laughs> enough to make you chuckle every single time. Yeah, yeah. Right. Number two, um, a lot of people remark that your voice is soothing. Whose voice do you love listening to? Oh, whose voice do I love listening to? Uh, I mean, David Attenborough. Sir David, God bless him. That's a great voice. Uh, it's, it's iconic. It's been around for such a long time as well. It's attached to so many groundbreaking programs. Um, but I do really like John Mulaney. He's got a great voice. It's, it's very distinctive, but without being grating. It's very characterful without being uh, overwhelming. And when he tells a story with his voice, it just really kind of captures your attention. And he can just sort of play with how you feel with it. Uh, so, yeah, John Mulaney. Okay, I'll take a listen to that. Number three, tell us one of your favorite YouTube channels. Oh, uh, I wish I got to watch more YouTube than I do. I don't get to consume a huge amount of it. Um, and for this, I think I'll stay away from the watch channels just so there are no favorites. <laughs> because I'm sure whatever I say, I'll upset someone. Yeah, don't upset Adrian again. <laughs> I really, really like Tom Scott. I don't know if you're familiar uh -huh. with Tom Scott. He does uh -huh. these sort of five to six minute long bite-sized uh, chunks about something that he's found in the world. So the last one I watched, it was a railway tunnel that has been repurposed into a, a wind tunnel. But instead of the car remaining stationary and the wind being blown at it, you drive the car forwards into the wind to more accurately simulate it. And he finds these little details around the world um, and tells a little story about it. And I, I really enjoy those, mainly because they're short as well, because I don't have time to watch a longer video. Mm, OK, next one. Um, I understand that you enjoy your writing, um, but what books have you recently read that or one book, I should say, that blew your socks off? Uh, again, I don't get to read as much as I really would like to, which is a real shame. 
I am um, currently reading The Stand by Stephen King. And when I say reading, I mean listening on audiobook. And I listen to that in the car when I'm driving and I, I literally can't do any other work. Um, it's a long book, but so far I think I'm two years into it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, Clearly, your 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 commute isn't long enough. No, no, it's a really long book, though. It's a really long book. Right, and the last one is last question. Tell us a goal that you wish to achieve by the end of the year. By the end of the year, oh goodness, uh, a million subscribers seems like a really obvious one. Um. But I think for perhaps a more nuanced answer, I would like to be able to create a show within the Watchfinder channel. If we treat it as a channel, like on a TV, you have, you have a channel will have multiple different shows for different types of people to create a successful show that has a broader appeal. It's become very apparent to me that when we started, Watchfinder was much more inclusive, but actually... Now we've been around for longer and there are more channels growing. There are other channels out there that actually reach a wider audience and that bring people in at an earlier point in their collecting lives than ours do. And I want to make sure that what we do stays relevant to everyone. Wow, really good, uh, admirable ambition. I hope you achieve that. Um, you know, if not this year and in the coming years, I look forward to following your channel and seeing what kind of content you come out with um you say been... admirable but i've effectively said i want more views on the channel so you know depends yeah, I, was how you pitch it. I was i was marketing <laughs> it for you <laughs> thank you but the jokes aside it's been an absolute pleasure to uh spend this hour with you uh talking about thank watches and, and the journey of watchbinder and really yeah the way you speak in real is almost it's pretty much as smooth as the videos it's been yeah, very well considered answers and yeah it's been really great to have you well thank you very much and really the the pleasure is all mine because um without you guys watching creating your own content and having me on this kind of thing wouldn't happen i wouldn't get to enjoy these conversations so thank you very much for considering me and having me it's been a real pleasure okay well there you go guys we'll see you on the next one that was andrew morgan bye bye bye, bye. As always, thank you for listening to The Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.